When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I have a fear of heights, and Heather has an enthusiasm for heights. You're not gonna like this. Oh, so anytime we're going upstairs, she gets excited. We'll do whatever we can to support you as yeah. you no, cross the it's... catwalk. I mean, we've gone to the top of Sutro Tower, so hopefully this won't be. <laughs> hopefully this won't be as high. Um, it's a sculptural piece by an artist called Olafur Eliasson, who's Icelandic but based in Berlin, um, and it's called One Way Color Tunnel. How high up are we? We're five floors up, but floors at SF MoMA are higher than usual floors. So I'd say we're probably more like 10 stories up. Thank you for saying that because <laughs> that was not five stories. That was at least 17 stories. Are you freaking out, Peter? We're way up high. Yeah, I am totally freaking out. I did not think at SF MoMA we were going to have a Sutro Tower situation where I'm looking straight down through grading. Um, Are you having a panic attack? I'm having a panic attack, but it is incredible art. If I'm going to have a panic attack, I want to have a panic attack surrounded by such beauty. You just heard Janet Bishop, chief curator at SF MoMA, taking us through the strikingly beautiful and harrowing one-way color tunnel and Heather, how do you manage to challenge my fear of heights even when we're at an art museum? <laughs> when I saw that way above our heads, I think it's like on, what was the equivalent? Like the 10th floor, 15th floor? Let's say it was the 100th floor. Yeah, 100th oh, floor. She said we- 10th, but 100th. <laughs> <laughs> We've got to go up there. I knew you would love it. Well, let's describe the scene. I mean, this is a color tunnel. It's kind of triangular. It's up really high, grating on the floor. Uh, multicolored, beautiful, stunning, Instagrammable. I thought it looked like something from like maybe a 70s or 80s Star Trek episode. Was that your thought? (laughs) No, I thought we were walking through a beautiful kaleidoscope and it felt like you were very high up and you could look through the graded floor all the way down to the bottom of the museum. So I could tell that you would be um, quite scared. Yeah, well, let's talk about SF MoMA. My core SF MoMA memory before this episode was the Examiner Chronicle Christmas party right after the merger in 2000 when I was at the Examiner. You were at the Chronicle. We all got together. Morale was low. People didn't get along. So they threw the biggest party in newspaper history. Yes, morale was low, but the piles of shrimp were high. (laughs) They went all out, and they gave us a lot of food and drink. If your company's flush, I suggest SF MoMA. Christmas parties aside, I really can't recommend this place enough. Every time I go, I find something new and wonder why I don't go more often. Yeah, I always intend to go more. You know, you just take it for granted since it's there every day, but um, definitely want to make a point of visiting more often. We had a, a great tour and there's so much to see. It's always changing. You never have the same experience twice. I also love the way SF MoMA seems to be getting more invested in Bay Area artists and fun, whether it's last year's Soapbox Derby in McLean 
McLaren Park that they were behind. Their Axion Latina exhibition of art and activism from the Mission District in the 1980s continues through June. And I loved the all-local, I think it was Sika Art Award exhibition. I had just talked to Honey Mahogany the morning we interviewed Janet, got on my bike, biked over to SFMOMA, and saw a portrait of her in the gallery there. Yeah, I love that portrait of Honey Mahogany. There is so much to see. Can't wait to go back. Well, SF MoMA coming up. A lot of talk, a lot of history. We talk about what's going on now. I, I love the fact that uh, Janet really was into the deeper history that I thought I was going to talk to her about it, and she told me a lot of things we didn't know. Um, also wanted to mention we're at the Bay Area Book Festival this weekend. It's this Sunday, May 7th at 2 p.m. on the San Francisco Chronicle stage interviewing our friend Olivia Allen Price from KQED about her new Bay Curious book. I think of Bay Curious as kind of a spiritual sister podcast. We sort of love and explore the city in the same ways, and Olivia is fun and enthusiastic. It'll be a great time. We'll be giving away prizes. Total SF and KQED, are you looking forward to it? Of course I am. I can't believe we haven't done anything with Bay Curious before, so everybody should come check it out. I'm Peter Hartlob, here with Heather Knight, who would rather be recording this on top of the Golden Gate Bridge. Very true. And this is Total SF. Thank you very much. Janet Bishop, welcome to Total SF. Thank you. Thank you so much for the great tour we just had. Um, Peter, have you recovered? We were like a million floors up going through. What was it called, Janet? The art the, piece? The one-way color tunnel yes. by Olafur Eliasson, it's which like is installed on our catwalk. I'm sorry. It's like a kaleidoscope. It's like being in a kaleidoscope. Yes. It yeah. really is. To answer your question, um, no. Uh, <laughs> my heart is still racing a little bit, but um, I think I'm going to be okay for the purposes of this podcast. You may have to carry it a little more than usual. <laughs> Um, well, this building is gorgeous and filled with wonderful art. What's it like to call this your office? Oh, I feel so grateful to live sur- I mean, day in, day out, surrounded by, by art. It's really a privilege. Um, yeah. One of the incredible things about working here is the opportunity just to step into the galleries at, at any time. When you're be- having a, a rough day or something bad happen, is there a favorite spot to go in the museum to kind of take a break, take a breather? Um, you know, I, I, there's a lot of different places that I love to visit. I, um, I often will uh, leave my office, which is on the ninth floor, and take the elevator down to five and then walk out onto our sculpture garden just for a breath of fresh air or go down to the third floor and step out and uh, in front of the living wall, which is one of my favorite parts of the building. Yeah. Our colleague Jessica Christian wrote a whole article and she's a photographer about places in San Francisco that are great when you need to cry and I saw a few of them here I think the living wall is one of them when I just need to kind of have a little bit of space but be somewhere beautiful and have a good cry so you can put that in your marketing (laughs) (laughs) I don't know that I've ever cried in front of the living wall to me it's like great for any range of um of uh, you know, sensory or emotional experiences. But, it, but I do really love the fact that um, the building, there's several places um, at SF Mobile where you can go outside. And that may not be so obvious given that we're you know, situated in such a dense urban you know, um, location. Right. Well, I'd love to get your origin story as the museum's chief curator. Uh, do you remember your first 
stay here? And how, how did you become interested in this? And how did you get here? I studied art history in college, and during my senior year, I did an internship um, and started working directly with objects for the first time, and I was completely hooked and really knew that um, museums are where I wanted to be professionally. Um, so I went and did a, did a master's in art history and came to San Francisco when I was had just finished um, my degree. Um, I started at SFMOMA as a curatorial assistant. It was June 1st, 1988, and, um, and I worked for all of the collecting departments at the time, so for painting and sculpture, architecture and design, photography, and media arts, and I worked on exactly half of the exhibitions that SFMOMA um, had on its calendar at any given time, and I had a wonderful colleague, Peter Samus, who started two days after I did, and he worked on the other half of uh, the exhibitions that were part of our program. But it was it was really um, uh, amazing to have had the experience of working in the War Memorial, War Memorial Building. Um, we were located on the third and fourth floors um, of that building uh, on Van Ness Avenue, 401 Van Ness, um, and um, and then moved uh, moved here in 1995, and it's. I feel really fortunate that um, to work in a place where I'm constantly learning. It's totally sustained my interest. I've worked under incredible directors. So. Well, I, I love the history of this place. Um, I dig around in our archive, as Heather knows, and um, I did a lot of digging on, on, on museums in the Bay Area about seven years ago and was just struck by a name, Grace McCann Morley, I'm not going to lecture you a lot on the history because I bet you know it a lot better than I do, but 1935, this individual creates the seeds of the SF MoMA, and within a year, there's a Matisse display in San Francisco, incredibly motivating person who got a lot of people to invest in this dream. And I'm wondering, as a curator, how much do you look at the past? How much do you look at the foundation of this museum when you're charting the future? I think it's really important to look at the successes of our past. And Grace McCann Morley was truly visionary. Um, she, it was so um, important to her that art should be you know, accessible to everyone. The museum was open long hours. We presented a dizzying number of exhibitions in any given year. Some of them were really short, some of them were three weeks long, but incredible range. Um, and, and a number of the areas where SFMOMA is still really strong today were established under, um, under Dr. Morley um, in 1935. So for instance, the um, emphasis on the art of our own region, emphasis on photography, emphasis on Latin American art, still areas that are, are really important to us today. I love that you also know that she had Matisse's hanging on our walls um, uh, within the first year of the museum being founded. Uh, the museum opened in January of 1935, and later that summer, uh, Sarah and Michael Stein, so Michael Stein being Gertrude Stein's brother and his wife Sarah, um, native San Franciscans, they moved back to the Bay Area from France, where they had been for three decades, and they brought their Matisse collection with them. And even before Grace McCann Morley saw what they had, she was already working to gain an introduction to Sarah and Michael Stein so that she could borrow their paintings for a Matisse exhibition, which opened in January of 1936. So. I mean, there was 
there were two things that she was doing that I think I still see it in the DNA of the museum now, and you mentioned it, like looking ahead, what kind of contacts we, sh we can get. And I should note, this is, you know, at a time, 1935 when, or the 19, early 1930s, when people still remember the earthquake. I mean, they remember San Francisco being burned to the ground, and there's this desire to be a world-class city again. So having Matisse paintings here, you know, when, when we're, we're wanting to be more like New York and Paris was such a big deal, but also going to schools and going to senior citizens meetings and every board and every neighborhood meeting and connecting with San Franciscans on an individual level, that to me is something that I think is in some ways even more impressive. And I see a little bit of it here you can walk in and see free art here. This is an accessible place. There's no question there. I'm just <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, Grace Morley was indefatigable. I mean, she she was our director for 16 years, and she made an enormous impact. And you're absolutely right. She was so committed to the community. She had a really strong network nationally and internationally. I mean, she she really put um, put the museum on the map. Well, I love that you have a new restaurant named after her, too. I know. And the, the new restaurant is really special, too. There are three um, contemporary works of art that are featured as part of it. Uh, there's a wall painting by the artist Rosanna Castrillo-Diaz, um, and it features um, uh, an enormous flower that's, um, that's uh, painted in um, reflective and non-reflective um, whites really beautiful, really subtle. Um, it's a dahlia, it, which is the official flower yes. of San Francisco. And, um, and then new in the space is a neon piece by Tracy Eamon called Fantastic to Feel Beautiful Again. And then there's a ceramic or mosaic piece by um, Rashid Johnson. So it's, the restaurant is, is um, it just looks beautiful. It's a fantastic menu, very welcoming. Um, and there's a bar, so it's good for Thursday nights. Nice. Well, you became chief curator of the museum in spring of 2019, and a year later, of course, the pandemic struck. What was it like at the museum during the pandemic? Were you guys coming in to check on the art and, and care for it, or? Well, you know, right before the pandemic, um, my, my husband and daughter gave me two plants that were so big and heavy that we had to pot them in my office. They were intended for the office. I thought that would be nice to have, have plants. Um, to look at every day, and um, and so I um, I really felt like I need to keep my plants alive. So I came in regularly. I also, Neil Benezra, our director at the time, and I were among the most sort of um, regular um, uh, kind of administrative workers um, throughout the the pandemic. But you know, I live I live nearby. I live in the Mission, and and um, and I I did really want to stay connected to the museum as a physical place. Um, and I also just actually like the separation between, you know, home mm -hmm. and work. Yeah. So I came in pretty regularly, although um, most of our staff was working mostly remotely. And what was it like to see the public come back? Oh my gosh, it was incredible. Um, we, when we reopened, um, there were long lines to get in and, uh, and, and there were people with 
you know, tears in their eyes. You know, it was like really having missed um, the opportunity to, you know, to visit the museum, see the exhibitions, you know, go through the galleries. Mm -hmm. um, there was an exhibition that um, that I had been working on for a number of years. It was a retrospective of the work of David Park, um, and there's there are these incredible paintings with with so much humanity pulsing through them. Um, it turns out the show was only up for seven weeks because we we reopened and then we had to close down for a second time um, because of a, another surge mm -hmm. in in COVID cases. Um, but it was um, I'm really glad we were able to present it even for that short time that we that we did. And what's visitorship like now? Are you back to the numbers you were seeing before the pandemic or still a work in progress? It's still a work in progress, you know, but until um, tourism really, you know, recovers fully, I don't think we're going to see pre-pandemic levels um, uh, in the, you know, in the, in the near term. Um, you know, the, the, there aren't as many people downtown mm -hmm. um, also, um, but um, we're seeing a higher percentage of people from our own community, you know, as opposed to the, the more national, international mm -hmm. um, kind of breakdown of, of audiences. So we're really, you know, thinking about that and, and, um, and wanting to, you know, encourage people to come back again and again. Yeah. There's always something new to see. I mean, it's too big to take it all in in one yeah. visit. So, what um, percentage so are you at compared to 2019? I think we're at about 60. Mm -hmm. We'll be right back after this short break. I love the outreach, and I love both of us. Heather and I are so thrilled you brought that soapbox derby back last year. Um, for the history, for the art, and because the city needed it. We heard so many people saying, San Francisco is back, because this fun, whimsical, random, beautiful thing is happening out in McLaren Park. What went into bringing that back? Was that planned before the pandemic, or was that a response to the pandemic? The idea had been in the works for a long time, and I'm, I'm trying to remember exactly when it sort of took hold and we kicked into high gear. Um, it was really the, um, the, our education and public practice department that, uh, that um, brought that to fruition under the you know, kind of incredible leadership of, um, of uh, Stella Lachman in particular. But it was such a fun way to engage artists both in the making of the derby cars and then also the trophies that were awarded. Um, and I was completely blown away by the number of people who, who showed up. I mean, there were, I, 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 don't, I, I can't remember what the estimate is in terms of the audience size. I don't know if you know Rebecca, sorry. Um, but it was, it, it was amazing to see so many people, so many families, so many kids um, just uh, absolutely delighted by the inventiveness of these cars and the chance to be you know out in San Francisco together on a beautiful day and um, and watching the sort of antics as the cars made their way down which what I thought was kind of a steep course <laughs> but um, afterwards we actually brought a, we brought a handful of them in and cited them in the lobby so people could continue to kind of come, just come in and, and and see some of the cars up close that, because they so many of them were just they were they're really you know sculptural objects yeah. I love know. that many of them paid tribute to the city like I remember a Sutro Tower one was too great funny with fog around the top I mean so good yeah, yeah they were great I love too that everybody will say that like kids are on screens and they 
engage differently. And I mean, I looked at the 1975 and I think 78 photos in the Chronicle archive and kids are enchanted then. And I looked at the photos that we took last year and it's the exact same looks on their faces. And um, I just thought it was a beautiful thing. Oh, sorry. Oh, I just want to, just one more thing about, I love that the Soapbox Derby took place in McLaren Park too, because McLaren Park is the second largest park in San Francisco, but it, it's, um, it's one that's mostly known to people who live in that neighborhood because there aren't major streets that go right by it. So in a way, you know, it, it is a kind of hidden part of like hidden San Francisco, even though it's, it's not, um, it's not small, it's just kind of off the beaten path in terms of circulation. So it was really fun to, to be in a, for a lot of people I think to be in a part of the city that, that may not be kind of usual stomping grounds. Yeah. Do you think we'll see it again? And coupled with the question, will there be other outreach? Is that something that you think about getting art out to the people, not just getting them here? Yeah, um, and we would love to do the Soapbox Derby again um, in terms of when it's still TBD. Um, and there are a couple of other things that would be sort of premature to talk about now, um, but ideas that we have that bring the spirit of the program that SF MoMA operated when we were closed for construction. So between 2013 and 2016, we launched an initiative called SF MoMA On The Go. It's when we presented um, uh, sculptures by Mark DeSuvero at Chrissy Field, for instance. We had um, uh, we had our Seek Art Award exhibition was offsite in various locations, you know, including the Columbarium. You know, um, so we're we're really keenly interested in in um, in the possibilities for programming outside of the envelope of this building. Um, so stay tuned. Be happy to share more as our plans gel. You can break news gel. on the SF podcast. I know, gosh, <laughs> I know, I might get in trouble. So. Well, we've, we've worked at the Chronicle, um, we're lifers. We've worked, I think, a combined 46 years at the well, Chronicle. Well, we're both gonna hit 25 years next year. Oh my oh, gosh. Okay. Wow, okay, God. Why I feel like I'm in, I'm in great company. People, <laughs> with people who love their jobs. Yeah. Right. Well, I wanted to ask you, I mean, 35 years, since 1988, I think you told us on, on the tour you gave us, how do you keep it fun? How do you keep it engaging? Well, you know, the projects are always changing, and so I'm always learning. You know, it's not that I, um, you know, studied art history and then have been just applying what I learned in college all these years. I'm, I, I have, um, I have an opportunity to, to, to be learning all the time, you know, as we work to grow our collection and as we're working on you know, new exhibitions. I love the collaborative nature of museum work and, um, and, and the museum has just attracted an incredible staff. And so I feel like I, I'm, I'm, I feel very privileged to work alongside such, such um, smart, interesting, creative people. That describes how I feel about the Chronicle. You I don't too, think right? I don't think our editors listen this far into the podcast. <laughs> <It's okay. laughs> um, if you could design one perfect day in San Francisco for an arts lover that was not just spending all of the day here, what would it be? Well, I think um, trying to hit as many of the uh, exterior publicly accessible projects as possible would be something that I would really recommend. When I um, First got to the city, you know, after after um, grad school and started SF MoMA, San Francisco was not 
particularly distinguished for its public art, and I think that's really changed mm -hmm. a lot. So, um, you know, I would encourage people to, you know, walk along the Embarcadero and take in the Claus Oldenburg Arrow to to um, to poke around the streets of um, of South of Market and um, what is the neighborhood now called East Cut? Poke around East Cut and see um, see Teresita Fernandez and see um, Yaya Kasama. I mean, there are amazing installations. Um, publicly accessible installations that are kind of right in our midst. Um, I'm a big fan of the work of, uh, of Ruth Asawa, so I think um, going out to the Deyoung and going to the Tower and looking at the Asawa pieces that are in part of the Deyoung's free zone is a really special thing to do. We did an um, episode all about her fountain at Union Square that just turned 50. Oh my gosh, yeah. yes, I love that. I yeah. love that. I love that 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 fountain, the, the the making of that fountain included, you know, so many people, not just um, a sour self. Yeah. And Great. Bread dough sculpture mm -hmm. making. Kids. Yeah. Kids, yeah. I love how transit accessible everything is too. I mean, you can pull into the ferry building and see a lot of art along the Embarcadero, hop on BART and go to, you know, Clarion Alley, um, come back through and, and see some Ruth Asawa art, or you mentioned East Cut, which is in a transit center. It just, you can kind of plot your own wonderful tour and then end it here or yeah. start it here. I love the park too. That's, um, that's uh, part of the, the um, Transbay Terminal. Yeah, yeah. Really special. Well, you've survived our serious questions and now it's time for the lightning round. <laughs> As a resident of the mission, this should be an easy question. Where is your favorite place in the city to get a burrito? Um, uh, Papalote. It's on uh, 24th, just off Valencia, mm -hmm. and I love the burritos, I love the tacos, and I also really like um, just their, their signature sauce. Where's your favorite place in the city to get a stiff drink? Oh my gosh, Grace's, of course, at SF Mama. <laughs> What's your choice there? What's your order? They have a variety of, uh, of, of mixed drinks, and, uh, and they, really, they really put a lot into them. They're not only tasty, but also pretty. Um, so, uh, I don't know. You date know. night. <laughs> <laughs> Double date. Come on down. Besides SF MoMA, what's your favorite museum to visit in San Francisco? You know, it's hard to choose just one because I, I really love um, that we have such a great community of uh, museums in San Francisco. And it was incredible when we were closed for construction to be able to partner with so many of them. We did projects at the Asian Art Museum, at the Contemporary Jewish Museum, at the Legion of Honor. Um, and so I, I honestly would say I don't have a favorite other than SFOMA, but I really, um, I really like going out to the park. So there is something kind of neat about, um, about going all the way out to, say, Lincoln Park and, mm -hmm. and, um, and, and checking out whatever might be happening at the Legion. And what's your favorite exhibit you've ever worked on at the SF MoMA? I've worked on a lot of memorable shows. Uh, one highlight for sure was an exhibition called The Steins Collect, um, which looked at the, um, the collections of Gertrude Stein and her family, so Matisse, Picasso, mm -hmm. and other members of the Parisian avant-garde that they got to know um, when they, during the years that they lived in Paris. It was just a, it was a great story because it was so connected to the, uh, the origins of the SF MoMA collection um, and also had a, a really interesting local angle. And last question, what's one thing you always make sure to squeeze into your busy day? Coffee. <laughs> Me too. 
Well, thank you so much for having us to the museum. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Really nice to talk to you both. Thank you for listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Our music today is from the Sunset Shipwrecks, Castro organ player David Hegarty, and cable car bell ringing from eight-time champion Byron Cobb. Support Total SF in the newsroom that creates it by investing in a digital Chronicle edition. It's less expensive than you think at sfchronicle.com slash pod.